Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features Peter Heller at Stillwater Public Library. Before turning his attention to novels, literary fiction breakout Peter Heller made a name for himself as a contributor to and editor for such publications as National Geographic Adventure, Outside Magazine, and Men's Journal. Heller traveled on assignment to all corners of the globe and parlayed many of his larger-than-life experiences into four gripping works of adventure nonfiction. Heller's fiction debut, The Dog Stars, was a dystopian thriller. It became a New York Times bestseller and a Best Book of 2012 selection from both Publishers Weekly and Amazon. His second novel, The Painter, centers around a reclusive artist trying to outrun his checkered past. The New York Times calls it a stunning, savage novel of art and violence, love and grief. Thank you. And thanks for coming out on a, on a cold night. I'm glad it's cold. Uh, we had 65 degree weather in Denver and um, I don't like it. It's not the way the world should be. <laughs> it makes me nervous. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna read to you guys tonight. Um, I hope you don't mind. I don't think we get read to enough as adults. And it was my very favorite thing as a, as a little kid was getting read to by my dad before he put me to sleep every night. And he did read to me a lot of poetry um, early. Uh, when I was about six, he started me on E.E. E. Cummings, um, which I always say was like grounds for social services. <laughs> don't you think? Some of those poems. Uh, it was good I didn't understand him, probably. Uh, and then uh, when I was like seven or eight, he, he had, had started me on Yeats, believe it or not. And I didn't really get those either, but um, I still remember Prayer for My Daughter was one of my favorites. I think an eight-year-old kid. I have walked and prayed for this young child an hour and heard the sea wind scream upon the tower and under the arches of the bridge and scream in the elms above the flooded stream. The music of it was so beautiful and I loved it and I just wanted to do that. You know, from the time of like eight, I just wanted to be a poet. Um, and then I was 11 somehow and I was walking around my little library in my little school in Brooklyn Heights, where I grew up. And the librarian, her name was Annie Bosworth, and she was English. And I had a huge crush on her. I would have married her right then. 
just for how she said my name. And she said, Pita, Pita, are you looking for something to read? And I said, yes. And a great librarian knows. They just know. She had helped me read since I was five. And she knew what I was ready for. And she took me over to the fiction shelf. And she pulled off In Our Time by Ernest Hemingway, that slim book of early stories. They're mostly Nick Adams stories from Upper Michigan. And imagine like an 11-year-old kid in Brooklyn taking that home and opening it up. I just, I mean, my jaw must have hit the floor. I, I wanted to do that. I wanted to hop off a freight in Upper Michigan in a burned-out forest with a backpack and walk through grass that was like wetting my my pant legs with dew and not burn my tongue on cowboy coffee. I really didn't know what cowboy coffee was, but it sounded awesome. Um, and I wanted to fish for those big, gorgeous trout. I wanted to have, like in, in the end of something, I wanted to have a girlfriend that could row and fish like a man and then break up with her. Because Nick did, right? And, I still don't know why he did that. Why did he break up with that woman? She was so awesome. Because I found out later, guys are really confused and kind of stupid most of the time. <laughs> I figured it's because she was too good for him. And I, I sort of, you know, sort of intuited that when I was 11. I wanted to break up with a woman because she was too good for me. I ended up doing that a couple times. <laughs> uh, or they broke up with me. But, uh, uh, but mainly what I wanted was to write like this guy. I wanted to. To, to write like that, write about it all like that. And it was one of those things where when you read just beautiful prose, um, it, it, it came through not my head, but someplace else. And you know what that feels like when you're reading something you just love, love, love. It comes through your skin or your heart. So I decided back when I was 11 that you know I was going to be a writer and write fiction if I could. And. Um, uh, Lynn said he sort of somehow slipped into journalism. <laughs> it wasn't like that. It was like they didn't tell you at the English department at Dartmouth, you can't make a living being a short story writer. They should tell you that. I mean, I think it was kind of mean of them. Uh, you know, that you're qualified to be a pizza deliverer, mostly. <laughs> so I did that. Uh, but I did, you know, I started, I mean, I started writing for outside places like that because I, I, I loved the outdoors and I wanted to combine my passion. I had to make a living. So. Anyway, here we are, three and a half years ago, I decided it was time to write fiction. I wrote The Dog Stars, uh, and then um, followed right away with this novel. But when you're doing something that you want to do since you were a little kid, um, you kind of go 100 miles an hour. And um, so for those of you who ha haven't read it, um, I'll just tell you just briefly what it's about. The painter is about a painter, go figure. Uh, he's, a, he's an expressionist artist from Taos, New Mexico. He's pretty famous. His paintings sell for a lot in his gallery in Santa Fe. Uh, he suffers a tragedy, um, and I won't tell you what it is, but it, it's about as bad as it gets. I mean, it's really bad. And uh, after that, his marriage falls apart. He stops painting. His life falls apart. He moves up to a little valley in western Colorado called the North Fork of the Gunnison. It really exists. It's a real place. Um, it's just beautiful. It's kind of a river wind run of, of cottonwoods and farms and orchards, ranches, uh, surrounded by mountains. And, and, and he loves to fly fish, um, go figure. Uh, if you read Dog Stars, you, that might not be, surprise you. Um, 
And uh, he finds a creek that he loves to fish, his, maybe his favorite ever. He fishes there every evening all by himself, little mountain creek. Uh, he finds a model that he can work with. She's a feisty young woman who has been an artist herself. She understands art. She gets it. He can work with her. And he begins to paint again. And he begins to sell his paintings. And he's getting his life just back together. And one afternoon, he's driving up this dirt road along his favorite creek. So imagine dirt road, creek, wooded canyon, spruce fir, mountains upstream. He's all excited. He hasn't fished for a few days. There's a horse trailer blocking the road, and there's an outfitter loading a little strawberry roan, and the little mare won't load. She's balking. And uh, this guide pulls out a club and starts to beat her to death. And our hero uh, intervenes and saves the horse and kills the guy, basically. I mean, he doesn't kill him right then, but soon after. So, um, so the horse lives, don't worry. <laughs> horse is fine. <laughs> I've had some people stop reading the book because they just can't bear the idea that the horse doesn't make it. Uh, I should put a little note at the beginning. You know, horse lives. <laughs> so what I'm going to read to you first, um, and I'm, I'm not going to read a ton, but I'm going to read three little sections, uh, is this is the first time his little daughter, Alcy, catches a fish, and first time he takes her fishing. And he's remembering it years later, um, the night after, the evening that he has his first tussle with this, with this hunting gun. I stood on the Ramada and tried to shake off the pressure of Dell's body, pressing me into the cold wet of the ditch, the sound of his grunt. I smoked the cigar down to the root, crushed it on a flagstone, lit another, the smell of rain. What I'd noticed was that here, in the wind shadow of the mountain, it often smelled like rain. It might be raining up on the ridge. I might see the veils and rags of rain hanging down out of the scudding clouds. I might see shrouds of rain hauled over the country the way a fishing boat might drag a net, but no rain here. A spatter, maybe, then nothing. Virga, that's what it was called. Alcee told me that once, came home from school one day and told me, rain that falls and never hits the ground. Come on, I'll show you, she said. I told her we might as well go fishing while we were at it. It was the first afternoon she ever caught a fish. I don't know how old she was, little. She was small for her age. She pointed up at the veils over the west rim, the water in the pool smooth without a drop. Virga. I gave her a thumbs up and threw a caddis for her and let it drift and gave her the rod. And as soon as she touched it, the trout hit and almost pulled it out of her small hands. Oh God, oh God, I yelled, way to go, keep the tip up like that, yeah. She was holding the rod straight up with all her strength and it was all she could do and she was in hysterics, laughing as much from shock as anything. Her hair was blowing across her face and the jerking rod was shaking the counterweight of her body and the fish was whizzing out the line. I wanted her to catch it herself. I was almost as panicked as she was. I had an idea. Run backwards, I yelled. Try and hold around the, the line. Yeah, like that. Slow it down. Go. Run up the bank. I was awed that she could even shift her grip. She ran, half backwards, half sideways, trying to hold the rod high like a broadsword, ran up into the dried stalks of mullein, the willows, and the fish came with her. 
up onto the rocks and was flopping, thwacking the stones, a big brown, God, big. She dropped the rod and ran like a puma down over the stones and pounced, both hands. The trout got away from her and she chased it, bent double, trying to wrangle it, landing on it again with both hands. It squirted out like a watermelon seed, slipped over the rock. She was after it. I was laughing, yelling and laughing. She got to it and grasped it and then fell on it, covering it with her whole body like a punt returner, covering the ball, screaming with glee, laughing and crying too. I reached under and I picked up the heavy fish and thwacked it on a rock and it was finally still and the colors dulled the way they do and then she burst into tears. Her print dress stained with fish slime and algae and blood, she was inconsolable, not for her clothes, for the fish. All the way home I held her in one arm as I drove and told her about the spirit of the trout how he was probably swimming now among the stars and would be happy to feed her and her mother and father tonight, and how proud I was of her. And I was surprised when a few days later, she wanted to go out with me again. And that's when I bought her a seven and a half foot four weight and began to teach her to cast. So, um, um, Jim um, Stegner is based on a, a real man named Jim Wagner, and I'll talk a little bit about later about how that happened. Um, but neither Jim Stegner nor Jim Wagner like to paint in plein air. They don't paint outside. Um, they paint in a room from their imaginations and use a model as a, as a figure, but, but then the painting is all from their head. And so I, I thought, um, since there's so much painting in the book, I would read you one little section about painting. Um, it's the first time Jim Stegner paints outside. And I oh, I should tell you that the whole book is structured um, around the painting. So every section or chapter begins with a catalog resume of a painting. So it'll say like horse and crow, oil on linen, 20 by 30 inches, collection of the artist or whatever. So you, you follow the story through the work, which is really kind of cool. And I can't believe I thought of it. Um, <laughs> I actually didn't think of it. <laughs> An English author friend of mine thought of it. <laughs> you take help wherever you can get it. This painting at the head of this chapter is called Just Before Fishing, Oil on Canvas, 20 by 30 inches, private collection. I have never painted in plein air, never set, set up on some hillside on some shore in a big hat, but I did on the road south of Sawatch. I'll skip ahead a little. I had put five small canvases in the back of the truck with the new paintings. The unused canvases were wrapped and tied in an old piece of rubber tarp. I pulled out a 2030 and set it on the easel and began. I painted what I saw. The braided stream threading the green and red willows like a little delta, the blackbirds flying. Three blackbirds of life, not the deathly watchers. Could hear them as I painted the peculiar exuberant buzzing call like an electric cable. I painted the Cooper's hawk that circled high the clouds above him on their own compelled heading. I painted fish jumping out of the water, though they weren't really jumping, they were sipping the surface. But fuck it, let's not be too literal. And I refrained from putting in a chicken or any death anywhere. Um, when I first read this, I read it the Strand in New York City. It was like such a huge honor. I was like, it was a Forrest Gump moment, sort of. Uh, 
And I read in the antiquities room upstairs where a lot of writers have read, and um, my four little nieces were on the front row. And Cammie's eight, and then Zoe was 10, and 11, 13. And my editor said her favorite part of the whole reading was she had a beeline on little Cammie's face who's eight. And when I said, fuck it, she just, she like, her whole face lit up with like total glee, like shock and glee. And she was like, Uncle Ting said, fuck it. And she, the whole, they all looked at each other and um, the whole front row was like a church pew moment. They all almost erupted, I could tell. They all wanted to laugh. And um, the oldest niece, she kind of, you know, clamped it down. I was, um, I was so proud of them all. <laughs> Near miss. Um, and I should say that both Jim Wagner and Jim Stegner um, can't get over chickens. Like, all their paintings, there's a freight train, there's a chicken, there's a nude, there's a chicken, a landscape, there's a chicken. And it's true. You can look on the website. I'll, I'll give you the, the link. <laughs> uh, so let's see, we were at chickens. Uh, I refrain from putting a chicken in, or death in anywhere. Funny, but it was very freeing just sticking to the landscape. You'd think it would be the opposite. A certain kind of pressure was lifted, one I realize now that I'd always felt in the limitless, blank outer space of total freedom, which is a vacuum of sorts and has its own imploding force. I thought it was ironic that now, with my assignment in front of me, paint the creek, the whole creek, and nothing but the creek, now I felt released. My spirit flew. I painted like a child, without thought, one color to the next, one bush to one pool to the next, to the birds, to fish, to a June bug about as big as a hummingbird, who landed on my cap. Fun to paint like this. I mean, it wasn't much different than painting an ocean of women, except that I had forbidden myself that kind of license. And I hummed and sang, and my imagination rested, not frightened at all of any sharks coming up from the deep or any malevolent birds. I was happy painting, and suddenly envied my friends who built houses and cut down trees, the jippo loggers like Pop, the ones in Moore County who were Ermina's friends, Bob at the station, fix the transmission, change the oil, or build a foundation, cut down the tree and the one next to it. What Ermina had said, Jim, you burned so hot. What felt good was to cool, to paint simply and to feel in cooling the calmness of craft, of being a journeyman who focuses on the simple task. Pin this one corner together and make it fit in an expanding universe. Not a single car passed and not sure how much time. A katydid pulsed out of the grass on the shoulder. The blackbirds buzzed and shrieked in happy territorial arguments. The sun climbed over the low ridge behind me and threw my shadow down to water's edge. After a while, the beaver in the closest pond emerged and cut a faint wake across the still water, came back some woodless errand. I could hear, too the slow current pouring over the closest dam, sifting and burbling in the pool below. I painted, painted the pace of it, the sounds as much as anything, the calm, it calmed me. That thing happened where I disappear, except this time it was not into the poised energy of a woman or into some watery interior landscape, but into instead the quiet creek in front of me, into the raucous commerce of corvids, the inscrutable transit of a beaver, the slow 
breathing of the morning. It was different and soothing and freeing, and I didn't even know that I disappeared until I heard the higher vibration of an approaching car still a ways off. It wasn't a car, it was a truck. Eh, eh, eh. <laughs> so the guy in the truck may be wanting to kill Jim, I'm just saying. Uh, And then when he does pull up, he says, expecting company, and Jim's like, no, no, why? He's, well, you have a 41 Magnum in your easel. <laughs> For people that like action, there's a little action. Um, it's not all poetry. Uh, I'm gonna read one last thing before, uh, and then I wanna have a conversation about the whole process of this thing, and I hope you guys ask a lot of questions. Um, in San Francisco, you guys know the Embarcadero. You've probably um, been there. Um, it's a ferry building is there also down on the pier. And it's, it's cool. I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful, it's like the heart of the city. And they have a radio show that they broadcast from there every Saturday called West Coast Live. It's on public radio. And um, I got to go there once. I was promoting a book about a surfing memoir called Kook. And um, one of my surfing buddies is here tonight. He surprised me last night at Majors and Quinn. It was great. <laughs> I've only seen him in Mexico. <laughs> uh, and um, so I was there, and I followed four surf bands before this interview, um, driving, electric guitar, all that. If you ever want to present your serious literary memoir to a credulous public, don't do it after four surf bands. <laughs> Nobody cares after that. Uh, this is what happens to Jim when he goes onto the show, and this painting is called, uh, the, 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 the heads of the chapter is called In Hostile Country, Oil on Canvas, 20 by 24 inches. Um, once an interviewer on a radio show right on the dock in San Francisco asked me why, coming from a family of Jippo loggers in Oregon, I had decided to paint. He was sitting on a stool beside me and we were beneath a large window that looked from the Embarcadero out onto San Francisco Bay. I used to get drunk before interviews like this, but this was 8 a.m., a little too early for even me. The interviews tended to make me feel a little like a rabbit or a lamb caught above tree line at nightfall. Steve, who had just become my most important dealer and sort of my manager, swore he would cut me off and send my paintings back if I ever got drunk again on live radio or TV. So I was stone cold sober except for a one hitter I did openly in the green room with a window looking out to Alcatraz. Um, there's a lot more one hitters going on in Denver right now. I don't know if you've heard. <laughs> the whole town smells like skunks. Uh, and I shivered and tried not to follow the progress of a small white sailboat and a big white ferry moving obliquely toward each other on the choppy blue water. What a cool place to have a radio interview, right on the dock. And I tried to think seriously about the man's question. It was, he was a good interviewer, warm and really interested, and he seemed to have actually read some of the coffee table book about me that I was now promoting. He must have looked carefully at the images of my work on the gallery's website. I could tell by his questions. But this question stopped my wildly beating heart for a moment and stiffened my bristles and raised hackles I suddenly discovered I had. I was, maybe I was not a rabbit after all. 
If I was a little stone before, I was not stone now. I blinked. I turned from the imminent and beautiful sea tragedy that was unfolding out the big windows and stared at the man. What did you ask? Why does the son of a simple logger paint? Yes, he said, smiling. Why choose to be an outsider artist with all the vagaries of a fickle art market, the stormy uncertainties of creativity? I mean, it's practically asking to be poor, at least for a decade or two, isn't it? And your family can't have much money to help. I read that you grew up in a trailer in the woods. Why choose to be, choose art when you might have a decent and rugged living as a logger like your father? I stared at him and thought about my father who died on a 40 degree slope under five tons of dug fur when a choke cable snapped. For some reason right then I thought about his red Jean Sered chainsaw which had a 36 inch bar. How he had set it down still running on a big stump and turned to lift a canteen filled with tap water when he died. What his buddy Egger told me as he handed me the saw. I sharpened it, he said. I thought about that. All Egger could say after sketching the scene was, I sharpened the saw. I think a lot of our listeners would like to know, the interviewer was saying. It seems terribly brave or reckless. I mean, where you came from, your father was practically illiterate. That, I could tell, was the question of the day. Was it reckless for the son of a Jippo logger to aspire to be an artist? It was the recklessness that informed this visceral, muscular, exuberant, outsider art, how he had described it in the intro. I got it, how the art world worked. It was okay to be an outsider as long as you carried your spear and wore your loincloth, stayed primitive, didn't get any uppity ideas. He widened his smile until it was pressing against his cheeks. I looked at him. I knew he would never ask the same question of a RISD grad. I had spent nights in jail because of men like this, men who condescended, who impugned, getting in fights. I had paid fines, been on probation. I said, is this show live? It is, right? Now it was his turn to blink. He didn't understand. I could see it, but he held his smile. Yes, of course. That's why we call it West Coast Live. Ha! A flash of fear appeared in his eyes, there and gone like the flank of a trout catching sunlight. Okay, I nodded in some kind of complicit agreement. I stuck out my hand like for a handshake. He hesitated. He seemed relieved. Okay, a handshake, he said. Let's shake on it to the recklessness of the artist who is truly down out of the hills and to the recklessness of live radio. He held out his long, slender hand, and I took it warmly like the fish that it was and gripped it the way you grip a big brown to get the hook out, and then I squeezed. He chirped like a chipmunk, then groaned. I squeezed. He pulled away, then tugged, then he was half laughing, half crying. Ow, okay, okay, uncle. Then he was kind of rearing back out of his stool, and then he was howling, and then I felt a bone snap. One of the knuckles in the first joint, and he screamed an unbridled, uncensored live radio shriek. And in his panic, he had knocked over the stool, and two sound men, or whatever they were, stout guys in baggy jeans, shot across the floor and smothered me. They pulled me off and just half ushered, half shoved me out the double doors that led onto the bright atrium gallery and the wide steps. 
Nobody followed, no cops, nothing. I stood at the top of the steps with the blood pounding in my temples and looked down at the bustling crowd milling through the outdoor market, the indoor market, the coffee shops and bookstores and restaurants, and felt the sun through the skylight warm on my shoulders and let the anger wash through me like warmed oil. A fine skim of anger on every working part until I didn't feel it at all except that I moved smoother, cleaner than I had in weeks. I felt as if the ghost of my father were standing next to me and he was laughing. Pop, I said out loud, fuck the fuckers, let's go get drunk. And I bounded down the steps. So, thank you. Thanks a lot. You know, it's so interesting reading that section um, in different parts of the country because there really is a difference in how people respond. Um, I could tell you guys about Minnesota if you want. <laughs> uh, but when I read that in the South, like in Oxford, Mississippi, or Jackson, or Nashville, or, or Atlanta, they go crazy. They love it. They're laughing the whole way through. They see what's coming. They're like, they're all over it. And I, and I realize it's because they understand grievance in the South. And they, they understand honor and aggrieved honor and, and, and vengeance. <laughs> um, but you know, when I read it in Boulder, Colorado, for instance, uh, it looks like you know everybody wants to climb under their chair. <laughs> and it was funny. I read it in Winona the other night, couple two nights ago, and um, they all everybody looked puzzled, like like well, that just wasn't nice. <laughs> and uh, it kind of confirmed everything I've heard in you know in Prairie Home Companion about Minnesotans. It was like they were just like. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. You know, I was like, <laughs> uh, anyway, you guys, you guys laughed. That's good. I mean, there's a current of malice running through everybody. <laughs>
And that's a voice, and the voice is a character, the character's in a place, there's a situation there, because there's always a situation, and he writes into the story. And then he said something that really surprised me. He said, I've worked with Elmore Leonard, and he often starts the same way. I mean, think of it, those tightly plotted crime novels in South Florida, you know, Get Shorty and all that, starting with just a first line, no clue. So this is a long answer to your question, but uh, it's, it's fun. Um, so that kind of gave me permission, and I went and I went to my local coffee shop, and I sat down, and I started writing a first line. I started writing. I wrote in a white heat for like a month, like twenty thousand, like a fifth of a novel about a seventeen-year-old girl who could fly at night, first person. And I began to feel like out of my depth because I didn't know much about flying like this. I don't have kids. I don't know what seventeen-year-olds think about. Um, I know one thing they think about because I remembered that part, uh, but um, it wasn't enough to you know, hang a character on. And I went to my friend Helen Thorpe, she's an author, and I started reading some, it in her kitchen. And I got it like half an hour into it, and I stopped and I said, what do you think? And she said, it's so great you're writing fiction. Uh, you know, the sentences are so nice and everything, but maybe this isn't the one. And I knew that your best friends are the ones who stand up for you and tell you you have spinach in your teeth or whatever. And I knew she was right, and I was kind of relieved. So I put that aside. A few days later, I sat down in my coffee shop and I wrote, I keep the beast running. I keep the hundred low lead on tap. I foresee attacks. And then a few lines later, my name is Hig, one name. Big Hig if you need another. If I ever woke up crying in the middle of a dream, and I'm not saying I did, it's because the trout are gone, every one. And as soon as I heard that, I was, you know, I was like, okay, I'm listening, you know, please, please tell me. And for seven months, I just listened and I wrote, and it was the most thrilling thing I'd ever experienced. It was so <coughs> marvelous. It was like a guy was sitting across a campfire from me with a wind blowing the flames around, you know, an October night telling me what had happened to him a few years before. And um, when I finished that, and I, I'm gonna talk a little bit later about how that felt channeled, that experience, but it really wasn't channeled, so I don't want the writers in the room to think you get in a fugue state and it's just like magic, it's not. But I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But um, I thought, uh, I better get right on the second novel because I'd heard about this thing called second novel syndrome um, and the sophomore effort thing. And I thought when I wrote Dog Stars that people might really like it. And I, you know, I, if there was clamor, I didn't want it to get in my head. I, I better start the next one. So I sat right down. I got a voice. I started writing it. A few days into it, I thought, this character sounds a lot like my buddy Jim Wagner who's a painter in Taos, New Mexico, and he's my fishing buddy. I lived with, you know, right next door to him for nine years. And, um, and then I decided there's no way it's him, it's not him. Because the liability issues would be too difficult. <laughs> he's still alive. So uh, I blithely forged ahead. A few weeks into it, I was like, mm, it really is him. I think I need to call him. And so I called him up, and I was nervous about it, and I, I said, hey, Jim, I'm writing a novel about uh, this uh, expressionist painter from Taos, New Mexico. He was like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Cool. And then I said, yeah, and you know, and he, he shot a guy in a bar just like you did. 
for, for making a comment about his kid. And uh, there was a silence, you know, and then he said, uh, and then I said, and he, and he spent a year in Santa Fe State, just like you. And uh, he was pardoned by the governor, just like you, for being a state treasurer. And, uh, and he actually kind of looks like you. I mean, he's like tall and broad shoulders. He's got a salt and pepper beard. He wears his cap tilted on his head, stuck with flies, and his clothes are paint spattered. And, and uh, they call him Hemingway down at the river. And oh yeah, he, likes, he loves to fly fish, just like you. And uh, in fact, his palette is a lot like yours. And, and the, the subjects he paints and the way he paints them are really strikingly similar to you. And uh, I went on it, sort of on it. Oh, and I said, oh, and that painting you did, the continuing housing crisis, the one with the fish swallowing all the houses and the guy, I, I put that in the book yesterday. <laughs> so then there was a, a heavy pregnant pause, and then I heard, Wow, that sounds awesome. Um, let me know how it goes. Keep me posted. So when I finished it, uh, I sent him the manuscript right away. And his, his partner, Mary, says, you know, he, he didn't like to read much. He's kind of dyslexic. I mean, he's a true painter, you know. He's, and, um, but he sat down. She said he sat down for four days at the dining room table and just flipped pages. And all she heard was like, oh, whoa. Mary, you got to hear this. Oh. And then... When he, he, and he loved it. And then when it was out, uh, the author gets two copies from the publisher, like two of the earliest hot off the press copies. And I sent him one. Four days later, my phone rang. And I saw it was him. I was like, and he said, oh, I love the book. I'm walking around my house wondering if I killed a guy, <laughs> which I thought was like really high praise. So, uh, so I would say, Yes, probably Jim Wagner has some anger issues, but, or maybe he might have had before. He came up in that school in Taos. There was a school of painters in Taos that came up in the 70s and 80s that were really wild. I mean, they were brawlers, they were heavy drinkers, they were lovers, they spent time in jail, and they, they made this, these amazing paintings. And he was part of that school, and um, he's mellowed out a lot. And he, but, but Jim is one of those guys, like Jim Stegner, that, well, stop and take a moth that's on the surface of the water and carefully put it on a leaf. And, um, you know, that kind of thing. When he catches a fish, he will hold the fish and let it idle and get its breath. Um, and he won't let it go until it's, until it's good. And so he's a very gentle person at the same time. He's com complicated. Our next audience member asks if there are any authors that Peter Heller returns to when he needs guidance. Most definitely. It's sort of like it's like priming, you know, a pump for sure, and for me. And um, I read, I read a lot of poetry uh, when I, when I want to read the good stuff. And I still read Yeats. Um, I go back always to um, a poem that I put in this book a lot, which is the Four Quartets by T. S. Eliot. I read that a lot, just for the music of the language. Um, I read Neruda. I read the Tang Dynasty, the Chinese poets because those guys in those sh little, those little imagistic poems from, you know, 780 AD, um, they'll put me right in the mountains with the, you know, with the, with the low clouds and the sound of the stream. And um, they're sort of aficionados of loss, those, the Tang Dynasty poets, Li Po, Wang, Wang Wei, Tu Fu, 
Li Shang Yin, and um, they're really connected to nature, and I, I just love that. So um, I read Cormac McCarthy, who influenced the who influenced the Dog Stars so much. When I wrote the Dog Stars, you know, okay, so here I was, uh, you know, right, you know, I started in, I wrote a few pages, and I realized this is a post-apocalyptic novel. I mean, I just started with the first line. I realized this guy's at an airport. It's nine years after Superflu's killed almost every everyone. Well, he's there with his dog Jasper and his old Cessna. This is a post-apocalyptic novel. And then I, th I said, dang it, I don't want to write a post-apocalyptic novel. This is my big chance to finally write fiction. And I don't want to write genre fiction. I want to write, you know, literary fiction. And I certainly don't want to get compared to Cormac McCarthy, The Road. I mean, that's the last thing you want when you're a debut novelist is to get compared to Cormac McCarthy. And I thought The Road was sort of, I still do think it's, you know, sort of the last word on the great American novel. I mean, where can you go after that? So uh, then I realized, you know, I kept writing. And I, I mean, the voice was so compelling, and I thought, um, this is a different project. I mean, I'd already laughed a few times. Hig has a sort of irrepressible joy of life. He's got a, you know, sort of a dry sense of humor. It's a different project than The Road. It's not nearly so bleak. Uh, and he's got a dog. I mean, what could be better? Um, so, uh, so, I, so I forged ahead. But that's, that's a really good question. When I think of others, I've been reading a lot of Spanish language writers late, lately too. Here's a discovery I want to tell you guys about. I just love this writer. Alvaro Mutis, M-U-T-I-S. He wrote um, one great book called The Adventures and Misadventures of McCroll. But if you just look up M-U-T-I-S, you can find it. Um, and it's, it's as good as Conrad. It's a, it starts as with an up the river story in Colombia, and the guy's a genius. He just died a couple years ago. Another audience member wonders how Heller was able to write a novel after Cormac McCarthy's The Road, a novel that he says influenced him, and still be able to have a unique, original story. I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't. I mean, um, be, so this is, a good, this is a good place to talk about that thing about channeling. I want to I tell you guys about it, because I think it's important, especially if you're writing. Um, I told you that I started with the first line. And I, and I like the music of, of, you know, I keep the beast running, and I, I just followed that voice. And um, what happens is, it, it feels like you're channeling a voice, but what I realize is that, um, and it's especially important to say this to younger writers, um, it felt channeled, but what was actually happening was, because I had written hundreds of stories before, I've mean, I I literally written you know, dozens and dozens of magazine stories. I've written you know, four or five nonfiction books. What happens when you write so many stories and so much poetry and stuff is that um, it's like riding a spirited mountain horse, where you know, this, there's this thing about authorial control, where you're, you're on this mountain horse, and it knows the country better than you, and you give it its head, and it starts climbing the mountain, and you know, down the valley, and then it wants to go down into this arroyo. And it has a brain the size of a walnut, or whatever a horse has, and you're a human being, and you know that's a bad idea. You know that. And so you just nudge it over, and you give, it his, you give him his head again, and you let him run again. But 
Those little decisions are because you made those mistakes in writing stories. You know that that's going to, you just can feel it coming. That's going to be a cul-de-sac. And so you nudge the horse over and let it run again. So there's always this like giving, giving of rain and then, you know, bringing it in and, and turning the story. And um, that happens, that's just craft. That just happens after years and years and years of writing stories. And um, this teacher at Iowa told me, um, Marvin Bell, he's a wonderful poet, and he said something I never forgot. He said, you know, in poetry, I have always learned, like he loved tennis, and he said, you know, you, you learn as much hitting the bad ball and watching the bad ball all the way to the end, go over the fence, hit the fence, whatever, follow those bad balls, and you do it in your poems and your stories too. Watch where they end up, and then just as much as the good balls. And then you start to know like when it's about to be a bad ball, when it's gonna be a cul-de-sac in your, in your story, and you back off. And so I thought that was great. And, and, and the other thing was, you know, one of my favorite birthday presents I ever got was an old girlfriend gave me a galvanized trash can. And big, you know, and she said, fill it up. And I thought that was so awesome because, you know, that's how you learn. You know, you just fill up those trash cans and, uh, and there's nothing wasted. I also want to mention in terms of that um, difference in methods. Um, so Dog Stars felt like sort of channeled, as I said. I finished in seven months. So I kind of was like, the painter, I started writing. I got this voice that I loved. And then I started... When I was writing The Dog Stars, I told myself, don't think, don't think, just listen, just listen, don't think. And at the end of the year, the Denver Post, after it was published, gave me a top thinker award for Colorado for not thinking. Um, and my wife, she, when I do something stupid, she picks it up. It's a Rodan, you know, it's a plaque with a Rodan stinker on it with a cowboy hat, because it's Denver, and she's, she picks it up and goes, top thinker, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, when I wrote The Painter, I was like, got the voice, I was going with it, and then I started to think. And I started to think, well, he kills this guy, should the guy have a brother, like full of vengeance? And I called my editor up and I said, hey, Jenny, should he have a brother? And she said, yeah, he should have a brother. So I put the brother in, and then I started to think, well, he's got this commission for a painting in Santa Fe, when should he go there, and you know, um, should the brother come, you know, what should happen? And then I started to think, I'm thinking. And that can't be good because I didn't think on the last one and that came out pretty well. So uh, I was going through this whole wrestling with this and I was in Paonia where this starts in a little coffee. There's one dedicated espresso machine in Paonia and it's in a coffee shop about as big as this corner. And there's one table in the middle and you're gonna meet whoever's in there. And guess who was in there? Paolo Bacigalupi, the great science fiction writer. This guy has written one big book after another, won Hugo Awards, um, shipbreakers, wind-up girl. He's a huge writer and we got to talking the way writers do and I began telling him about this like creative mess I was in and he was great. He's younger than me and but it was kind of like sit down son uh, I want to tell you a story. He said I wrote two short stories. One I completely channeled and he by the way he's lying but because he's doing his craft. Fugue State woke up, I sent it in it won an award, I love it. Second story, I completely engineered, designed every character to interact a certain way in every scene, plotted every second of the story, I sent it in, it won an award, I love it. Now when I hold up the two of them, I love them both, I can't tell the difference. 
And he leaned forward and he said, your job is just to make sure it doesn't suck. And it was like the creative burden just lifted off my shoulders. I thought, I could probably do that. I mean, that's something I can probably do. But what he was saying was rely on your craft. I mean, he was saying, you've been doing this a long time, in revision, bush hog out the bad stuff, tighten up the slow stuff, rearrange stuff if you need to, just make sure it's not crap. And uh, so that was hugely helpful. Our last question of the night is what Peter Heller is working on now. Yeah, I finished a novel a few weeks ago, um, and I made it. I, didn't, I don't want to get pigeonholed as a Western writer, so I went to Maine. <laughs> it's as far east as you can go, down east Maine, and I wrote a castaway novel in, off the coast of Maine. And I'm actually going to put it aside for a while because it's so different. It's sort of, it gets kind of surreal, and it's really different than these two. And I, I want to... I want to make sure that it's, it's all right. Uh, do you guys know the Japanese novelist Murakami? That's another one. I read Murakami all the time. I love Murakami. I didn't like his last big tour de force, but I love everything else. Uh, I, like I like it when um, novelists sort of take you along and you know, they're holding your hand and you're just like, you've completely suspended your disbelief and then they tip you into a really bizarre world. And, it's sort of like you know the frog in the boiling water, and you just don't even realize you're there until you're right in the middle of it. And it's like, how did I get here? I love that. I, I want to learn how to do that. And I actually, writing this book, I actually got huge respect for Stephen King, that he could actually bring us into these stories, and we believe him when we're there. It's, it's pretty amazing. I'm going to close with a paragraph about the process of painting. And I don't paint. My, my mom paints, and my dad paints, and my dad's grandmother was a wonderful painter and I did spend nine years with Jim Wagner you know I mean I would I'd pick him up to go fishing and he'd be working on a piece and I'd watch him what's so cool about writing the book was that when Jim Wagner the real painter approaches a canvas he doesn't know what he's gonna paint so it's sort of like me saying I'm gonna just start with the first line and see what happens and these amazing and you can look them up Jim Wagner Towns these amazing paintings come out, and they're wonderful. And when Jim Stegner in the novel would approach a canvas, I wouldn't know what he was going to paint, ever. And he would just start painting, and it was such a thrill because oftentimes, well, I would say all the paintings in some way, some fascinating way that I, I wasn't even conscious of, relate to what he's going through, uh, in some, you know, either the, the images or the tone of it. Um, I guess you couldn't, it couldn't help but do that. But, um, Jim talks a lot in the book about, or muses about his process. And it occurs to me that sitting and listening to voices in a coffee shop and writing them down is a little nuts. Have you ever thought of that? I mean, 150 years ago, I mean, I might have been put in an insane asylum, you know, if I didn't keep, keep it down, right? And, um, it's great that the mores change. My uncle George was a wonderful architect. He died two years ago, and he was an architect in Vermont. And his best friend was an architect in Norway. And his buddy got the commission to change the name of the Oslo Insane Asylum, believe it or not. <laughs> carved, over the, um, carved over the lintel in granite, and on a big block, it said, Insane Asylum. And they wanted to update it and, and have it say something more PC, like, you know, Institute for the Mental, blah, blah, blah. 
So he figured out, he looked at it, and he figured out the cheapest way to do it would be to pull the block of granite out and flip it around and recarve the back side. So they pulled the block of granite out and they flipped it around, and on the back it said, Lunatic Asylum. <laughs> so the, the mores do change, and now some of us get to be novelists, right? <laughs> Jim says, apropos of that, he says, Nobody, not even artists, understood art. What speed has to do with it, how much work it takes, year after year, building the skills, the trust in the process, more work probably than any Olympic athlete ever puts in because it is 24 hours a day, even in dreams. And then when the skills and the trust are in place, the best work usually takes the least effort. Usually. It comes fast. It comes without thought. It comes like a horse running you over at night. But even if people understand this, they don't understand that sometimes it is not like that at all. Because the process has always been craft, years and years, then faith, then letting go. But now sometimes the best work is agony. Pieces put together, torn apart, rebuilt, doubt in everything that has been learned, terrible crisis of faith, the faith that allowed it all to work. Oh God, and even then through this, if you survive the halting pace and the fever, sometimes you make the best work you've ever made. That is the part none of us understand. The reason people are so moved by art and why artists tend to take it all so seriously is that if they are real and true, they come to the painting with everything they know and feel and love and all the things they don't know and some of the things they hope. And they are honest about them all and put them on the canvas. What can be more serious? What more really can be at stake except life itself? Which is why maybe artists are always equating the two and driving everybody crazy by insisting that art is life. Well, cut us some slack. It's harder work than one might imagine and riskier and takes a very special and dear kind of mad person. Thank you for coming. Well, that's it from our Stillwater Public Library event with Peter Heller. Catch our next Club Book event with renowned poet and first-time novelist Amy Kwan Berry at the Northtown Library in Blaine on Wednesday, March 4th at 7 p.m. Meet Amy Kwan Berry, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. And if you're on Twitter, find us using the handle at clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, the St. Paul Hotel, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.